This, uh, this picture or uh, similar ones has come to epitomize success over the last two weeks. Of course, it's Michael Phelps. He was called by a commentator last week the most successful Olympian of all time. Why successful? Because he's got a long list of accomplishments, both in the U.S. and global swimming competitions. He's been awarded and recognized more than any other Olympians, 28 medals, 23 of those gold, over four different Olympic Games, I believe. He's earned, in fact, the right to decide what races he swims in. Did you notice that this week? He would decide whether he was going to swim or not. He is the most successful Olympian of all times. And to some degree, we're all enthralled by his success because in some way, we'd like to be similarly successful. Maybe in sports or at work or at school or in our profession. We want to be similarly successful. Maybe more importantly, we want to be similarly admired. And that's what we're going to study today in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 26 now of Acts. 26 out of 28 chapters, so we're nearing the end of what, for many of you, has been an 18-month journey. And as we look at chapter 26 today, we're going to look at success. First of all, success defined. And secondly, success redefined. Now, over the last five chapters, we've seen the Apostle Paul travel to Jerusalem only to be attacked and almost killed by the Jews at the temple. He was arrested by the Roman authorities. He was falsely accused by the Jewish leaders. He was transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea, the provincial capital of that area, and tried in court by two different Roman governors. And although found to be without guilt during those trials, he was left in prison for two years as a favor to the Jews who actually wanted him to be killed. All in all, it doesn't look like a very successful trip for Paul to Jerusalem. And as we ended chapter 25, a few weeks ago, Paul had exercised his right to be transferred to Rome and having his, have his case heard by the Roman emperor. It was a right granted to every Roman citizen. And Roman, the Roman governor Festus at that time was in trouble because he had no explanation to give the emperor as to why Paul was being transferred and why he was to be held, have a trial, much less why he had been held in custody for two years. So he needed help and he asked the then king Herod Agrippa to give him some advice because Herod Agrippa was familiar with the Jewish faith and it was obvious to Governor Festus that the dispute between Paul and the Jews was religious in nature. And King Agrippa agreed to hear Paul's case the next day. So Agrippa and his queen or sister, Bernice, along with all the important people of Caesarea, gathered for a hearing which was much more like a gala social event than it was a legal proceeding. And Governor Festus, at the end of chapter 25, opens the hearing with a very long introduction similar to what I just did. <laughs> and so let's read all of Acts 26, and we'll make some general observations as we go, 
And then we'll come back to the, what we want to study today, which is success defined and success redefined. But first, let's read it and get some general observations. We'll start in verse 1 of Acts chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Let's stop right there for just a minute. Look at verse 1. It's interesting that Luke includes Paul stretching out his hands. I think it's Luke's indication that he was actually an eyewitness to this trial. He doesn't say I was there, but he's describing details that one would believe had to be there to see. So Luke adds that in verse 1. And then in verse 3, Paul says that he's happy to be having his hearing with Agrippa because Agrippa is familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Actually, Herod Agrippa's great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He was an Edomite. He was from Edom, one of Israel's enemies, long-time enemies. So he wasn't a Jew by birth, but he was a practicing Jew, as was King Agrippa II in chapter 26. And the Jews allowed the king to appoint the high priest. So the high priest that we read about in Acts 21 through 26 or 25 is actually appointed by King Herod Agrippa. Let's pick up the verse in uh, verse 4 then. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Let's stop there for a minute. Paul is testifying before King Agrippa, and he says he's on trial for his hope. What is his hope? His hope is in the promised Messiah that all the Jews spend day and night worshiping and preparing for the promised Messiah who was going to come and do three things. The Messiah was going to conquer their enemies, he was going to right the wrongs, and he was going to rule as a righteous king. That was their promised Messiah. And the faithful Jews believed that the faithful ones were going to be resurrected to live in this messianic kingdom that was promised to them. And that was the Jews' focus. And Paul says it was their focus during the daytime, it was their focus at night. They lived for this hope. And Paul told King Agrippa, I'm actually on trial because of this hope that King Agrippa knew about. Let's pick it up in verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death... I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. 
In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's interesting here. Jesus gives a summary of the way to salvation to Paul. He says, it's by faith in Jesus. That's what he says, by faith in me. So it starts with faith in Jesus Christ, and it includes repenting, turning, turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. And what are the results of placing our faith in Christ and repenting? It re results in forgiveness, Jesus says, and sanctification, being made holy. So here you see that faith and repentance are inseparable in the words of Christ. In some of our Latter-day theologies, we try to separate those, but in Jesus' words, they go together, faith and repentance. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is asked, what shall we do? He says, repent and believe. He says it several times. That's how Jesus worded it, repent and believe. I think they go together. The act of repentance, turning, means you turn from your own justification, your own way, and you turn and place your trust in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And if there's anybody in this room who hasn't turned and placed their faith in Christ, I would beg you to do so this morning. It's not too late to turn from darkness to light and turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. Let's pick it up in verse 19. Paul's still speaking to King Agrippa. He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So you see it in verse 20, once again, repentance, followed by, as Jesus told Paul, deeds, that are consistent with our new nature. That's the book of James. When you read the book of James, is that good works or deeds rightfully follow our repentance. And here Paul tells King Agrippa the same. And then in verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, 
said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things had escaped his notice. For this has been done, not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Stop there for just a minute in verse 27. In front of his whole entourage, King Agrippa is put on the spot. Paul tells him, do you agree with the Old Testament prophets? If he says no, he's in trouble with the Jews. If he says yes, what reason will he give Paul for not believing what the prophets taught about Jesus Christ? So Agrippa's in a bind. Verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Actually, that's not true. Paul could have been set free. He only had to go to Caesar, to Rome, if he was still convicted of a crime. They could have let him go, but they chose, once again, not to. Agrippa joined a long line of Roman and Jewish leaders who simply refused to do the right thing. That's Acts 26, but let's go back and look at some key verses from the chapter that we just read and see what God says about success. First of all, success defined as we see in the first 11 verses of this chapter. And what I believe this tells us is that as Paul describes his early life and says basically I was a very successful Pharisee early in my life, he describes these four components of success. He describes advancement, admiration, autonomy and accomplishment. Let's see if we can make sense from those four. First of all, advancement. You see in, uh, in verse 4, you get a first glimpse of it. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. So Paul's climbing of the ladder of success started when he was just a young boy. And it was so profound, he says in verse 4, that all of the Jews knew about him. He was famous. And look at verse 10, he says, uh, when they were put to death, meaning the Christians, I cast my vote with them. When he says, I cast my vote, it literally says, I threw down my stone, which is the way the Sanhedrin voted. 
in favor or against by throwing down a certain color stone. So Paul was quite likely, as a young man, a member of the highest Jewish council in the land, the Sanhedrin. That was how incredible his advancement was. Back in Acts 22, we get another glimpse. He says, I was so successful, I was being taught under Gamaliel, the most famous and established rabbi of the time. It's actually even more clear in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let me read it for us. Galatians 1, 13 and 14. This is what Paul says. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So a key component of Paul's early success was advancement. But not only advancement, Admiration. We already saw in verse 4 that we looked at earlier, Paul was known by all the Jews. But in verse 5 he says, even the current Jewish leaders were impressed with Paul. What does he say in verse 5? He says, they, meaning the Jewish leaders and the high priest, have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So, 25 years after Paul left his position on the Sanhedrin, he was still known by the leaders and the Jewish high priest of his day. So, not only advancement, but Paul enjoyed admiration. Thirdly, autonomy. Look at verse 11. It says, In raging fury against them, the Christians, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was given the authority to make the pursuit of Christians his life work. And as we saw in verse 11, he did so not only in Jerusalem, under the watchful eye of the Sanhedrin, he did so in foreign cities where he was the established Jewish authority. He was given autonomy to take his mission out on his own. So a third component of Paul's early success was autonomy granted him by his superiors. And the fourth component, I believe, is accomplishment. Paul says, as a young man, I was getting results. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says, he locked up many saints, and I punished them often. Where? In all the synagogues. Where? Even to foreign cities. Paul got results way above what would be expected of him. So a fourth aspect of Paul's early success was that it was based on accomplishments. He got results. But I think as I look at that list, it's more than just what Paul considered to be success. Because I believe it to be very consistent with how our world views success today. It's how we often view success, is it not? Advancement. Think about work. For some people, success at work is defined by advancement, defined by promotions, whether you get promotions or not. That's how we define success oftentimes at work. Think about sports teams. 
You advance from third string to second string to first string. That's success in sports. Our education system is based on promotions, right? From the third grade to the fourth grade to the fifth grade, all the way up. If you get a master's or a PhD, we say you've gotten a what? An advanced degree. How about admiration? Think about how many different awards we have. I can't even list them all. Oscars, Emmys, ESPYs, Tonys, Entertainers of the Year, Most Valuable Players, Olympic Gold Medalists. The list goes on and on and on. Our world is driven by awards and recognition everywhere. I get a kick out of Greta Van Susteren. Did I say that right? On the, I call it the Greta Show. I don't know what the name of the real show is. On the record or something like that? At the end of every broadcast, what does she say? Go to my Facebook page and like it. I don't know why she says that other than it gives her some recognition that you watch the show. Our world spins on admiration, awards and recognitions. What about autonomy? Success at work is oftentimes tied to being the boss, where we get to call the shots, or even better than being the boss, being away from the boss. I remember the first transfer I had with Dow was to Dalton, Georgia. It was a tiny little site, so small that now they don't even have a site leader, but that was my job at the time. And I remember pulling up to the gate and talking to Ted, the gate guard, who I met that day. He's a great guy, but I asked Ted, I said, Ted, I have a camera. I want to take some pictures of the plant for my wife, and uh, I need to know who to ask permission to take, a, take pictures. And he looked at me and he said, well, last time I heard it was the site manager had to get permission, and last time I heard, you're he. And I thought, wow, this is going to be good, you know. <laughs> Autonomy. Nowadays, I face special attention to TV ads for retirement. And what do they say? Save up enough money. Save up enough so that you can do what you want, when you want when we can have autonomy. Successful retirement is even defined by autonomy. What about accomplishment? It's football season again for me, which is great. But you hear commentators say you're only a successful quarterback in the NFL if what? If you win a Super Bowl. Right? You've got to have accomplishments. Political candidates talk constantly about what they've accomplished. Why? They want you to know they have been successful so you can have some confidence that they're going to be successful again. So do you agree? Is this how we measure the success of people today? Is this how we measure often our own success? Well, let me be clear about that because all these things are actually fine. It's okay to attain them. There's nothing inherently wrong with advancement or admiration or autonomy or accomplishment. In fact, they're a part of life. They're, in many ways, integral to how God has created us. Because we can look at Bible character after Bible character with these, where these elements are on full display. Think of King David. In the life of King David, do we see advancement from a shepherd to a king? Do we see admiration from the people of Israel? Do we see autonomy? And do we see accomplishment? Yeah, to use another A word, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. But as we'll see from Paul's life after his conversion, 
These elements don't define a successful life from God's perspective. These are all fine, but in God's perspective, they don't define a successful life. And I believe what God does in the second half of Acts chapter 26 is through Paul, he redefines success for us. So let's look at how God redefines success. First of all, he defines it as servanthood. Look at verses 16 through 18. In verse 16, he tells Paul about his new job description. He says, Paul, your new job is going to be servant. Or in some translations, it's translated minister. Actually, there's seven, I counted anyway, seven Greek words in the New Testament that are translated as some kind of servant. This particular one is the Greek word for an under rower. What's an under rower? In, the, in Rome those days, they had rowing ships that had at least three levels of men on them that rowed the oars. The very bottom level of rowers was called the under rowers. It was the lowest of the low. And that's the word Paul chooses. That's actually the word Christ uses to tell Paul what his new job is going to be. Paul, you're going to be an under rower. You're going to be a galley slave. That's your new job. And then he tells Paul what his new job is supposed to do, to do. He tells him in verse 17 and 18, Paul is now to promote others. How's he supposed to promote others? He's supposed to help them turn, turn or advance from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And then he's supposed to promote them to the highest honor possible for mankind. How's he supposed to help them do that? He's supposed to help them achieve a place among those who are sanctified. That's Paul's new job. Galley slave, whose job is to not promote himself, but promote other people. That's his job. But not only servanthood, he tells Paul his job should include selflessness. Look at verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that they ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus Christ. It, Selflessness starts with, first of all, an understanding of our own unworthiness, our own sinfulness. Because the only successful thing we can do on our own is to successfully sin. And we're good at it over and over and over again. And I like the way Paul says, I myself. He didn't say, I was following orders, I was following the lead of my elders, we did this or that, which is the way we often describe our own shortcomings. He says, I, myself, did this. And then he uses the word I times in the following three verses to describe what he did. Never did he say, we did this, or in the name of the Sanhedrin, I did this. He said, I, 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 I did it. It was me. It started with a firm understanding of his own unworthiness. But it extends all the way to a concern for other people. Look at verse 29. Paul had been mistreated up to this point, had he not? He'd been nearly beaten to death. He'd been falsely imprisoned for more than two years. He'd been ignored. He'd been ridiculed. He stood before the men who did this to him. And he wished only their best. 
He wished for them Jesus Christ without the hardships that he had to undergo. Jesus Christ without the chains. Amazing. Paul, if, if I had been in Paul's shoes, I would have said, you know what? You men have falsely accused me. You've thrown me in prison without charges. You haven't done your job. You should be in these chains. You should be in my place. You should be in prison. Not me. And what does Paul say? I wish you were all like me in Christ, except for all the hardships I've had to go through. So, Paul's selflessness started with a clear understanding of his own unworthiness, but extended all the way into a sincere concern for other people. So, servanthood, selflessness, third, submission. And I see three facets to Paul's submission. First of all, as soon as he sees the risen Christ, what does he say? Who are you, Lord? It starts with recognition of Jesus as our Lord. This word here means master or owner. It's used in the New Testament to describe the Messiah. So Paul's submission starts with the realization that Jesus Christ is our master. It's his master. And then in verse 19, he tells King Agrippa, Actually, I wasn't disobedient to what Jesus told me. So the second thing, it starts with recognition of Jesus as Lord, and then it extends into obedience to Christ. That was a 180-degree change in Paul's life from what he was doing before, was it not? Hard for him to do, even harder for people to understand. Paul had a real challenge on his hands, but he tells King Agrippa, I didn't disobey. Christ told me to do this, and that's what I did. So recognition of Jesus as Lord, followed by obedience, followed by dependence. In verse 22, Paul says, Yeah, it was difficult, but I've had help. Help from God, I think, at least in at least two ways. First of all, strength and endurance. Think about what Paul had gone through the previous two years, wasting away in a prison. He, God had given him strength and endurance to keep the faith. And then in verse 22 we see here, I think Paul says that God helped him through the word of God. Paul didn't need to modify what Christ had told him in any way. He didn't have to modify what the Old Testament scriptures said in any way. He didn't have to add or take away. He didn't have to water it down. He didn't have to make it politically correct. Right? All he had to do was say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. So Paul says, God has helped me by giving me the truth, by revealing to me the scriptures. So Paul's submission included recognition of Jesus as Lord, obedience to what Christ said, and then dependence on Christ to live his life accordingly. But not only servanthood, selfishness, and submission, but steadfastness. Maybe not. There we go. Can you back me up one? There you go. Thank you. Steadfastness. It may not be real obvious when we read it first, but think about what's been going on. Paul came to Jerusalem a little over two years previous, and he testified before thousands of people. Why do I say thousands? Think about the Jewish crowds at the temple. It says the crowds were overflowing because of the feast day. Lots of Jews heard his testimony on the steps of the Antonio Fortress. Commander Claudius commanded a thousand soldiers who heard Paul testify. The Sanhedrin heard him testify. Governor Felix and Drusilla 
heard Paul testify. Now Governor Felix and King Agrippa and Queen Bernice and all the prominent men of Caesarea heard Paul testify. Not only the prominent men of Caesarea, but look at what he says in verse 22. I stand here testifying both to small and great. Paul was telling them, yeah, there's a lot of important, in quote, people in this room, but I'm talking to everybody. You servants who don't get any attention, you need Christ just like King Agrippa needs. He's talking to everybody. Paul had literally testified to thousands of people during his two years in Jerusalem and then Caesarea. But you know what? Luke does not record a single conversion of anyone during those two years. Now, I would like to think there were some, but we don't know. And perhaps Paul didn't even know himself. But he did know about some rejections, didn't he? Governor Festus in verse uh, 24. Oops. I keep going, trying to go forward on you guys. You guys probably want me to go forward too. But the... Governor Festus in verse 24. What's he say? Paul, you're out of your mind. He said, basically telling Paul, Paul, this makes no sense. You're a fool. This is for those of weak minds, Paul. You're highly educated. What's wrong with you? Your mind has gone bad on you. It's a common response to the gospel, isn't it? We hear it all the time in today's world. It's a common response. It's just foolishness. But he hears a second rejection as well from King Agrippa. King Agrippa doesn't say it's foolishness. What does King Agrippa say? He basically changes the subject. He avoids the issue. He deflects the question. He just ignores the appeal, doesn't he? Another common response to the gospel today. But it hasn't always been that kind of response in the book of Acts. Think way back as our study of Acts over the last 18 months, some of the rejection that Paul received when he gave the gospel was anything but peaceful. There were threats, there were riots, there were arrests, there were people stoned, there was imprisonment, there was murder, there were assaults. You know, we would look at all these results, the peaceful one and the not peaceful ones, and we would say, you know what, Paul? You've got a severe lack of accomplishments. You've got no results. We'd say, wow, that wasn't very successful. Because that's the way we define success. But how does God view it? Look back at Acts 23, verse 11. 23, 11. The context is Jesus appears to the Apostle Paul in Jerusalem after being attacked by the Jews and arrested by the Romans and is in a Roman prison. Christ comes to him and says, Well, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. You see, God wasn't at all anxious about Paul and his results, was he? He simply wanted Paul to be, first of all, persistent. He tells him, take courage. Don't quit. Keep going. He wanted him to be persistent. And secondly, he wanted him to be faithful to the Scriptures. What does he say? Testify to the facts about me. Testify to what you know to be true. So God was not anxious. He rather wanted Paul to be persistent and faithful. He wanted Paul to be steadfast in his role as a servant. He wanted him to be steadfast in his role as a galley slave. 
to the Gentiles and the Jews. So in summary, how was God defining success for Paul in the latter half of his life? First of all, instead of advancement, which we defined as a life defined by progress and promotion, God redefines success as a life of servanthood, a life dedicated to the promotion of other people. Instead of admiration, where others build us up through recognition and rewards, God redefines success as selflessness, where we spend ourselves for the sake of other people. Instead of autonomy, where we earn the right to do what we want, when we want, a successful life, according to God, is a life that's doing what our Lord Jesus wants, when he wants it. And instead of a life defined by accomplishment where we have a long list of impressive results, God redefines success as a life that is long on perseverance and faith. This was a difficult lesson for me and a humbling one as well because I stand before you saying I have actually enjoyed some success as the world defines it. Many of you could perhaps say the same. And success as the world defines it can be uh, intoxicating. It can be even somewhat addictive. And it's what I energetically pursued for the first half of my life. But when God saved me at the age of 32, he pointed me in the true direction of success, which is one of servanthood and selflessness, and submission, and steadfastness. Now, of course, I sometimes stray back to the old path, but by God's grace, he brings me back. And when I stay on that track of success, as God defines it, I found that life is so much more rewarding, and so much more joyful, and so much more meaningful, because it's what God has created us to do. Can you relate to that? Here's how Paul summarized what we've just been talking about in Philippians chapter 3, starting with the second half of verse 4. Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law... A Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So one of the questions I think we need to ask ourselves as we wrap this up is, do you want to be successful? Do you want to be successful? From this lesson, I think we know how God would define that. 
But the second thought that came to me, do you want your children and your grandchildren to be successful? So think about what are you teaching them? About what do you get most again? When do you congratulate them? When do you tell them you're proud of them? Who do you encourage them to emulate? Now we're fortunate right now that Pam and I live close to our five grandchildren and we get to do a lot of stuff with them. About three weeks ago, our grandson Landry, which tells you a lot about me because he was named after Tom Landry. We'll get into that at a different time. He was running in a youth triathlon, so Pam and I wanted to go, we, but the, actually the triathlon started early for some reason, and by the time we got there and got through all the traffic, we'd actually missed the triathlon. And we found them at the finish line. He was finished. He was, we watched the other runners run and talked a little bit. He said he was hungry, so we went to McDonald's and had a cookie and a snack, you know, as grandparents and grandchildren would do. And it was the next day that... Uh, his mom saw this picture on the internet. This was the triathlon. He, op- he ran in the Cyprus Triathlon for youth, six-year-olds. It's an interesting photo, isn't it? The first place winner didn't even show up for the award. That was Landry's place. He didn't know. We didn't know. His parents didn't know. He actually won the triathlon. And when they had the award ceremony, we were having chocolate chip cookies playing on the McDonald's playground. (laughs) Now, my first thought was, what a shame. What a disaster. Landry missed his opportunity to be recognized for his success, for his accomplishments. But now when I look at that picture, I get a great reminder of what I should be focused on with my great children, my grandchildren. You know it's great if they get to stand on the podium of worldly success, but it's far greater, and it's my prayer for them that they would pursue with all their heart success as God defines it. So do you want your children and grandchildren to be successful? Actually, I talked to Landry about this yesterday and asked him if I could share the picture with you, and he said, I guess so. But it's a good reminder for me about what to pray for and encourage in my grandchildren. But lastly, I want to ask one more question. Not only do you want to be successful yourself, do you want your children and grandchildren to be successful? Do you want Grace Bible Church to be successful? So where does your mind go when I ask you about what a successful church is? It goes all kinds of places, I'm sure. Does it include servanthood? and selflessness, and submission, and steadfastness. It should. And I think about this often as I pray about your search for a new teaching pastor. Because what is it that we really want in a teaching pastor? Is it someone who has advanced degrees? who's widely recognized as a great teacher, who has experience as a leader and as a pastor, and it comes with a long list of accomplishments? 
Or do we want a man with a servant's heart who puts others first, who lives a life of submission to God and is steadfast in his obedience and teaching of God's word? Actually, to be completely honest, we want both. (laughs) Right? We want it all. And by the way, we'd like it now. But the encouraging thing to me is that your elders and your pastor search committee, and I trust all of you, would prioritize someone who has demonstrated godly success over someone who stood on the podium of worldly success. And from the scriptures we've looked at today, I think we can conclude that God would make the same choice. So our challenge is we simply have to find the man that God has chosen. Would you pray with me? Father, as we uh, stand humble before you, looking at what we deem to be successful versus what you have declared to be successful, uh, we admit our shortcomings and we admit our short-sightedness before you. Father, we pray that you would encourage us through your word, that you would help us strive to be successful in your economy and in your way. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.